Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Valerie. Let's pray as we look to God's word together this morning. Oh Lord, would you open our hearts, open our minds, help us to see. Uh, don't, let us, don't let us be like the uh, people who Isaiah describes in Isaiah 6, who have eyes but can't see and ears but can't hear. No, but um, let the scales fall from our eyes and unstop our ears so that we would hear your word, so that we would hear the words of Christ, not even the words of Chris. Oh, Lord, if there's anything that I say this morning that's not helpful, would you just erase it from our minds? And everything that's true, help it to stick. Would you amplify it so that we would be changed and transformed by your word and your word alone? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in James. We're actually going to take a little break. Lent starts in two weeks. We're going on a vacation this week. And so next week, um, a friend of our church, Terry Shanahan, uh, will preach on something else. So we're going to take about a two-month break from our march through the book of James before we pick up. And, um, and this is a really appropriate section to finish on. In fact, the more I've thought about this morning's text, this little chunk that we're looking at this morning, um, I, I really think this might be the single most important chunk paragraph in all of James. Um, if you're, again, if you're new or if you're visiting, we've been, we've been really diving deep into the New Testament book of James uh, for a significant part of this year. Because James, uh, who's writing to first-century Jews, is writing with, it's a pretty short letter, it's only five chapters, uh, with one purpose. He's, he's really trying to answer one overarching question, which is this. What does it mean to be wise? Or the way we've been asking it, kind of the, a different way of asking the same question, what does it mean to grow into a mature faith? To be not just kind of a baby Christian, not just a casual Christian, not just a, a Christian who, you know, I say I'm a Christian because I got baptized once, but the rest of my life. No, what does it look like that, that my faith seeps into every single corner of my life? It's a fitting book. And this morning, so, so far, just to give, again, a little bit of context, most of James is about this is what wisdom looks like in this area of life or in that area of life. This is what it looks like to be wise in how we speak and how we don't speak and how we use our words. 
This is what it looks like to be wise in, you know, whatever, all sorts of areas of life. This is how it looks like to be wise in our suffering, he's talked about. How do we suffer in ways that are wise and mature in our faith? But this morning, James really kind of pauses on those very, very, very practical questions, and he zooms out a little bit, and he says, let's think again before we forget about the nature of wisdom itself. This little section, I think, kind of unlocks the rest of James because he's just talking about what is, not just what does it mean to be wise in this or that area of life, what does it mean to be wise, period? What is wisdom? And where does wisdom come from? It's worth noting that we don't really, if we're honest, I'm going to project a little bit, I don't think about wisdom a whole lot. Do you? Our culture doesn't think about or talk about wisdom. I mean, when's the, when's the last time you read a magazine article about wisdom or a blog or, or you saw somebody post on Facebook celebrating somebody else's wisdom? Has it ever happened? We don't really think about wisdom, and, and according to James here, we don't think about it nearly enough. Maybe part of that is, is because the world around us really doesn't value wisdom. In fact, think about, uh, and James is going to contrast, I, I should probably make this note, James is going to contrast our world with kind of the spiritual realm. We have to be careful here. He's not saying the world is bad and everything in the world is evil and wicked and that we're trying to like disengage from the world to be only spiritual. That's not... That's not biblical, that's actually, if you know your Greek philosophy, that's Platonism. That's Plato. Um, That's not Jesus. In fact, God says this world matters deeply. Why? Because he made it. And he's here to to restore it, just like we prayed. Thy kingdom, thy come, uh, come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the goal is not to disengage from the world and be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, but the goal is to bring heaven to earth. So let's just be clear about it. We're not saying everything on the earth is wicked and we're trying to disengage. We are saying that so much of the world has a natural bent that arcs away from God and away from wisdom. And the task that James is going to call us to is to try to bend that arc back. So think about it. If the world doesn't really celebrate wisdom, what does it celebrate? We find a key in the word celebrate what other word sounds like celebrate, like a celebrity? We think a lot about, I mean, how many, if, you, if you're standing in line at the, um, has anybody subscribed to magazines? I don't know. But when you're standing in line at Market Basket, you've got all the magazines. Uh, they're not about wisdom. They're not about really anything heavy or deep or profound or meaningful. It's, it's all about what? It's all about celebrity. It's all about people who are featured on TV. It's all about actors and actresses. It's all about athletes. The world values those things. The world values things like um, productivity. We don't, we don't celebrate wisdom. You know what we celebrate is productivity. And if you're looking for kind of a meaningful life, I mean, how many articles have you read about people who get things done? How many articles are written This isn't to criticize these people, by the way, but just kind of to diagnose our attitudes about it. How many articles have been written about Elon Musk 
or Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. Why? Because look at how much they've accomplished. See, we, we think about accomplishment and achievement and productivity and efficiency and optimization, getting as much done as you can. We celebrate, uh, so we celebrate celebrity, so to speak, famous people. We celebrate productivity. We celebrate power. How many articles and features on the news are given to political leaders and about somebody's clever political maneuverings to get them in a certain place or somebody's rise to power. We celebrate fame on its own. This one's, this one's odd to me. Um, and again, this isn't to criticize anybody, but it's to diagnose our own heart. There are people who are famous for no other reason than that they're famous. Like they're somehow, and I don't get how this works, and actually, those of you who are younger than me can maybe help explain this to me, but you can create a TikTok account or an Instagram account, and you post the right things that other people want to see, and I guess you get sponsors, and then you make money, and all of a sudden, you haven't done anything, and you're colossal. You have a million followers, and we love this stuff, and we follow these people, you see? Name one person. We can, we can name people who are famous for being famous. We can name athletes. We can name actors and actresses. We can name productive business people. We can name politicians. Name one person who is celebrated for their wisdom. Maybe you could name a handful. Could you name more than five right off the bat who are, who are well-known Not just people you know who are wise, but people who are well-known for their wisdom. I dare say it's a short list. Partly, James is going to explain, because uh, wisdom goes hand-in-hand with humility. And so the wise people, by definition, they kind of tend to want to fade into the background. They don't want to toot their own horn or draw attention to themselves. And it's worth noting that to succeed in a worldly sense you have to draw attention to yourself. You have to publicize. You have to market. You have to, you see? Here's the thing about those things. One last little observation there is that none of that lasts. None of that lasts. Athletes, celebrities, actors, actresses, they come and they go and we forget about them. So there must be more to it. Remember, um, Remember Farrah Fawcett? Some of you remember Farrah Fawcett. When's the last time you've thought about Farrah Fawcett? At the peak of her fame, which might have have been before my time, but at the peak of her fame, she was everywhere, right? When's the last time? Did you know? I I had to look her up. I, I was only familiar with her through kind of some secondhand. She died 13 years ago. Did you know that? How quickly we forget celebrity and fame and worldly recognition. How quickly those things fade. See, we need something else. We need something that will last. We need something deeper. James says, pursue wisdom. Pursue wisdom. So we're going to spend some time this morning thinking about wisdom. And what does wisdom look like? 
What is the appearance of wisdom? We'll ask then, where does wisdom come from? What's the source of it? And then lastly, how do we get it? How do we get it? What does it look like? What's the source? Where does it come from? How do we get it? When James talks about wisdom, first he just makes one kind of overarching um, observation. Is he says it's inextricably, inextricably linked to humility. Look at verse 13 again. Who is wise and understanding among you? That's a good way to introduce it, by the way. Who's, just in here, this isn't rhetorical, or just, who's wise? Anybody dare raise your hand? <laughs> who's wise among you? You might think about it not by thinking of yourself, but who, who do you know who is wise? Who in your life is wise? James says, let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. I dare say that the person who came to your mind or the people who are wise, you would quickly also describe as humble. And then James gives us two lists. He gives us a short list of what wisdom doesn't look like and a long list of what it does look like. Let's look first at the list of what it doesn't look like. He actually gives it to us twice. Do you notice twice? He talks about avoiding envy. In verse 14, he calls it bitter envy and selfish ambition. Wisdom doesn't look like envy or selfish ambition. Envy is, what is envy? Envy is you want what someone else has, and so you get angry at the person themselves. It's, it's an interesting thing that we, we basically confuse a person's possessions with, with the person. We confuse what they have with who they are. And so envy means that somebody has something that you want that you don't have. It could be a possession, it could be an income, it could be um, a neighborhood or a town that they live in. It could be a relationship. It could be this person has, this person is married and I'm not and I envy that. They have kids and I don't and I envy that. It could be um, all sorts of things. And all of a sudden, you start to get bitter, not towards what the person has, but towards the person themselves. You confuse who they are with what they have. The second on the list, he says, is selfish ambition. What is that? It's similar. It's kind of a desire for status. You want people to see you, and you want people to recognize you. Last, last week, um, one of the observations that stuck with me, Luciana made such a, a sharp observation. that the, she was talking, Remember, she was talking about a, a lamp, and you don't, uh, nobody, nobody lights a lamp and hides it under a bucket or under, under a pot or under a, um, what's the word? A bowl. That's, what's that thing? A bowl. Uh, nobody lights a lamp and hides it under a bowl, but you put it on a stand. And she, and she pointed out, do you remember this? I do. She said that, that a lamp does not exist to draw attention to itself. The, the purpose of a lamp is not that everybody goes, oh, look at that lamp and how beautiful and how bright the light is. No, the lamp exists to illuminate the whole rest of the room. It's, it's nature. It's designed to be, in some ways, a very humble instrument. The lamp doesn't exist to be seen. The lamp exists so that by it, its surroundings, the rest of the world can be seen. That's, a, that's actually a pretty good picture of wisdom. And James says we, we want that. We want to avoid selfish ambition, which is that somebody else recognizes me. 
that I've achieved something, I've accomplished something, I've reached a certain level or promotion or role or job title at work, I've reached a certain social standing, I've reached whatever. The the similarity between envy and selfish ambition is that both of them are very self-focused, you see? And they grow out of, it's interesting, they're self-focused and they're others-focused, but in the wrong way. Because they grow out of constantly comparing ourselves with other people. They grow out of constantly comparing ourselves and implicitly competing with other people. You end up, it's very cruel if you think about it, you end up defining yourself based on somebody else. You see what's going on there? Your, your identity actually becomes wrapped up in somebody, whoever else you're comparing yourself to. So no wonder it feels like slavery. Because you had, you actually, you're not your own. You kind of belong to the person that you've chosen to compare yourself to. Instead of self-definition, you become defined by somebody else. That's what wisdom doesn't look like. What does it look like? Well, James gives us this, this rather long list in verse 17. Here's what I'm thinking. I, I thought we could go kind of rapid fire through these attributes. Just say a couple things about each of them. And then we'll start, we're, we're going to really kind of try to set the bar so high that we all feel a little bit hopeless. <laughs> then we're going to ask, how in the world do we get it? And is it possible? And the teaser, spoiler alert, yes, it's possible. What does wisdom look like? If you've got your Bible open or your program, I'm looking at verse 17 here. He says, true wisdom is pure. What does it mean to be pure? Something is pure when it's completely unpolluted. It's, not, uh, it's completely unstained. Um, to say something is 90% pure is, is a self-contradiction. Right? Pure is binary. It's black or white. Either it is or it isn't. Like, would you drink a water bottle, water from a water bottle, if the label said 90% pure water? What if it said 99% pure? Would you, would you drink it, I wonder? <laughs> I hope your question is, well, I hope probably your answer is no, but if your answer is maybe, I hope your question is, well, what's the 1%? Do you know what that impurity is? If you don't, I mean, it, it could be, I don't know, like milk. Well, sure, I'd drink that, I guess. What if the 1% is cyanide, poison? If it's cyanide, would you drink it if it's 99.9% pure? You see, wisdom, James says, is pure, completely unpolluted and unstained. By what? By anything else. We would say by the the so-called, in air quotes, wisdom of the world around us. We're going to come back to this, but I just want to plant this seed because this is so important. James says that the wisdom of the kingdom of God is categorically different than the wisdom of the world, which means that if we follow God's wisdom and if we follow Jesus, we will look bonkers to people who don't follow Jesus. Like, we will look outrageous. Wisdom is pure. Wisdom is peace-loving. In other words, a wise person does not stir up conflict 
A wise person doesn't say sly, kind of veiled things about other people behind their back. It doesn't call into question people's character uh, behind their back. But true wisdom loves peace. It seeks peace. I say this almost every time we talk about peace, but it's worth mentioning that we think of peace as the absence of conflict. But, but biblically, like the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, isn't the absence of something, it's the presence of something. It's the presence that everything in the world is as it should be. It's, it's not neutral. Peace doesn't mean things are neutral. Peace means your life is full and joyful. It's the best picture I get, shalom, peace, is you sitting around a big table with all of your friends and family at a holiday, a birthday party, or Thanksgiving, realizing you've spent the last three hours eating and laughing, and it didn't feel like five minutes. That's shalom. See, we think about peace in, in pretty thin terms. It's just the absence of conflict. Um, <laughs> remember, I've remembered this. Um, a Colt revolver, you know, the, originally it was a five-shooter and then a six-shooter. A Colt revolver is, called, is nicknamed the peacemaker, it's kind of funny, kind of not funny. <laughs> um, then I looked it up because I couldn't remember what revolver it was and, and, you know, Wikipedia and why not. And I actually found out there are a lot of weapons called the peacemaker. That would be a worldly form of peace. Wisdom is peacemaking. This is dipping in, actually, if you look at verse 18, James um, focuses on peacemaking again. And let me just make one more note about that before we move on that there's a difference between peacemaking and conflict avoiding. When James says wisdom is peaceful, that means wisdom is not, it's not the thin peace that avoids conflict at all costs and just doesn't deal with it, but it's the kind of thick, robust wisdom that wades into conflict to try to reconcile and make peace that's willing to actually roll up its sleeves and get a lot of dirt under its fingernails. Wisdom is pure. It is peace-loving, peace-making. Wisdom is considerate, James says. It's considerate. Maybe the best way to think about this word is to look for it elsewhere in the New Testament. In Philippians 2, Paul says, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, there's that word again, consider, consider Consider what? Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, Paul says, but also to the interests of others. Consideration means that we consider others, not, not just before ourselves, but in a sense as better than ourselves. Wisdom is pure, peace-loving, peacemaking, considerate, submissive. Oh boy, here's a loaded word. What's the pastor going to do with that one? Let me just say this. The, the fact that this is such a loaded word and that we bristle, that we kind of chafe when we hear the word submission, probably says an awful lot about how pervasively the world's sense of wisdom has seeped into us and how radical God's wisdom truly is. Remember we said that God's wisdom is going to make us look crazy to the world around us. Wisdom is submissive. We have to ask, well, submits to what? James doesn't tell us. And I'll be honest, I'm not totally sure what to make of that. 
He just says it's submissive. Submits to what? Submits to whom? He doesn't say. But at the very least, we can draw this conclusion. Suffice it to say that, that a person who submits to no one, a person who takes orders from no one, a person who is the captain of their own life, according to James, is certainly not wise. Next, he says, wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. Mercy and good fruit. The clear image of fruit, you know, fruit, apple or lemon or whatever, fruit grows on a tree, and if the tree is healthy, then the fruit is healthy. And if the tree is diseased, then you're going to have sickly, brown, mealy, just nasty fruit. A healthy tree bears healthy fruit. And what's one of the key fruits of a healthy tree? James says mercy. Isn't it interesting that he, why does he key in on mercy? James says a wise person is someone who has a, just a natural default bent towards mercy. Maybe it's connected to the next on the list, impartial. Wisdom is impartial. It doesn't let itself be governed by, by the rules of the world like tit for tat or the positive corollary, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It doesn't favor its friends or family in a way that's costly to other people. Wisdom is sincere. It just means without hypocrisy. The Greek word, this is interesting, the Greek word for hypocrite um, is, the, is the same word can be translated as an actor. And in ancient Greek theater, all the actors, they wore these very or, uh, ornate, kind of obvious masks. So you go to a theater play, and the actors uh, spoke, and they sang a lot, and they wore these masks. And so a hypocrite is somebody who has a mask on. They look one way on the outside, but they're another way behind the mask. James says wisdom, that's a formidable list, isn't it? You notice? Anybody else depressed yet? If we're, if we're really honest about this, like, <laughs> the more honest we are about this, every one of these pricks at some part of our heart. And we realize, like, I'm, I'm not pure. I'm not peacemaking. I'm not submissive. And there are, sure, there, there are, we're, not, we're not 100% impure. We're not 100, we're not, you know. But each one of them convicts us in its own way. It sounds impossible. How can I become like that? I think James wants us to feel this way. To feel like this, this, is, a, this is an overwhelming list. Where do I go to get this kind of wisdom? I'm glad you asked. James tells us. He just says it point blank. Where does wisdom come from? Where does wisdom come from? Look at verse 15. We're going to kind of come in through the back door. He says, such wisdom, and there he's talking about the wisdom of the world, the envy and the selfish ambition, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. So true wisdom comes, as James says, from heaven. It comes from outside us. Our world doesn't really talk about wisdom a whole lot. If it did, and in the ancient world, they thought a lot about wisdom. But a lot of ancients thought that they could achieve wisdom just by thinking hard enough. 
through philosophy, through moralism, through reason, or through rhetoric. We can just work really hard and become wise. Maybe the most standard definition, if you ask somebody on the street, what is wisdom? They'll probably say something like, well, wisdom is just knowing things and then knowing how to apply your knowledge. So it's different from knowledge, but it's like knowledge applied. James says that's not enough. That's not enough. True wisdom doesn't come from within us, and it doesn't come from the world around us. It comes from outside of us completely. It comes from heaven. It comes from God. True wisdom comes from Jesus. Let's think back. Remember the first in that list that wisdom is pure? Purity is a really helpful kind of case study in this. Let's think a little bit more about that. Um, that word pure doesn't come up a whole lot in the New Testament. It does come up a lot in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see it like this. Uh, Proverbs 21, the, the ways of the righteous are pure. Psalm 12:6. God's words are pure. Hmm. Psalm 119, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to God's word. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, we see that the source of purity, and if wisdom is is pure, then we can assume that the source of wisdom is God and God's word. Wisdom comes from God. That's a really important point. You don't, you don't get to wisdom just by thinking harder or by reasoning. We, um, we're tempted to say that we can know God other ways, and, and we can in a very limited way. But all of the other ways will leave us short if we rely only on those. We think we can know God from, from just experience. I've had an experience with God and it's, I mean, you, you really can't be a Christian if you haven't had an experience. Like, the definition of Christ, a Christian is someone whose heart God has changed and is changing. Like, you have experienced God. Yes. But if that's all you know of God, it's not enough, James says. We think we can know God through tradition. The traditions of the church, the traditions of our worship service, the traditions of... And those are, those are good, yes, you, and you will, they can, they can give you some, some insight into who God is, but if you just rely on tradition, you will be hollow. Some of us think we can know God through reason. If I just think hard enough about God, God must be like fill in the blank. We think we can, we, can, we can logically get to God. And James says that'll leave you crippled at best. All, all of those things are good. They are good tools. They must submit to God's word, which stands over them. They must. Because it is through God's word that he tells us who he is and what he is like. This is so important because so many times God's word will tell us things about God that we don't like. There, and let me be clear, like, from the pastor, 
there are parts of this book that I don't like. There are parts of this book I guarantee that you don't like. Who's your God? We use tradition and reason and experience to explain our ways around this book so that we don't have to deal with the parts that make us uncomfortable. So that we don't have to deal with the parts where God calls us to do something really hard. Where God calls us to do something that everybody else thinks is nuts. But if, if, if we submit this book to any other standard over it, we've, we've really made ourselves God. You see? True wisdom, James says, is from the word of God. And that way, we, I mean, when we do that, we can't like rationalize or justify our way around it. Then all of a sudden, we, we, can, we can no longer say, well, I, I just can't believe in a God who would ask me to fill in the blank. Well, here, here's another one we hear, I hear a lot. Well, okay, I know the Bible says that, but that was then. That was thousands of years ago. This is now. Or, or well, I was always taught, dot, dot, dot. You see, all of those things are trying to put, put tradition or reason or experience in the chair, in the throne that is rightly occupied by the word of God. Friends, listen, listen closely. I say this in all love. Anything else will leave you bankrupt. I don't, I don't just mean like financially bankrupt. It will leave you spiritually bankrupt, emotionally bankrupt, eventually morally bankrupt. Any wisdom that is not grounded in the word of God is false wisdom. Proverbs 26, 12 is brilliant. It says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? See, who's made himself wise? There is more hope for a fool than for him. If you want to get offended, by the way, read Proverbs. <laughs> in fact, James doesn't, he, he takes it one step further he doesn't just call it false wisdom. You know what he calls it? Look at verse 15. Such wisdom is earthly and unspiritual and of the devil. That is demon wisdom. Demon faith. James isn't afraid to talk about demons and the dark world. We've seen it before. See, the, the, the ways of the world, so to speak, um, we often think they're neutral. They're not. That anything that does not lead us expressly to Jesus Christ is leading us away from him and is therefore demonic. True wisdom comes from the word of God and nowhere else. So how do we get it? How do we get it? We look to the word of God simple. <laughs> we look to the word of God. That means more, it doesn't mean less than, but it means more than just reading your Bible. Like, I hope you do read your Bible because, because the more God's word and God's words get in you, the more you'll just become like him. But it's maybe most helpful to think about Jesus here. Think about Jesus with me. Think about Jesus and think about the list of wise attributes that James has described for us. 
What is wisdom? Wisdom is pure, completely unstained, 100% unblemished by the world. Who's the one person in history who never sinned? Never. Wisdom is peace-loving and peacemaking, not conflict-avoidant, but willing to roll up its sleeves and get dirt under its fingernails to make peace. Who put skin on and rolled up his sleeves and didn't just get dirt, but blood, not just under his fingernails, but who gave, who poured out his blood to make peace, not avoiding conflict? Hmm? True wisdom is considerate. It considers others better than themselves. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. True wisdom is submissive. In Philippians 2, we read that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient. That's the same as submission. Became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, we bristle at submission, especially the idea of submitting to something that doesn't deserve our submission. And yet Jesus Christ submitted to death, the one person who didn't deserve to. Out of love. Wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. Was there anybody more merciful than Jesus? Wisdom is impartial. And Jesus didn't follow tit-for-tat rules or you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. He didn't come to save only his friends. He didn't come for the powerful. In fact, he came for the powerless. Those who are well, Jesus said, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus, Jesus came and died for those not most like him, but least like him. True wisdom only comes from the Word of God, which is this book with a lowercase w, but which is the Word. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God. He was with God in the beginning. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. True wisdom comes only from knowing the word of God, Jesus Christ. All other wisdom will be self-serving. It will kill you because you'll be stuck comparing yourself to everything and everyone else around you. Only Jesus, only Jesus says you can't compare yourself. He says, I will liberate you from that slavery Because I look at you and say you are mine and you are accepted no matter the dark corners of your heart. I died for you, you, just as you are. Now will you come follow me? How do we get wisdom? Well, in James 1, he's already told us, James 1, I think it's verse 8, give or take. (laughs) If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him, now it's verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. Do you want wisdom? Do you want Jesus? Ask. Just ask. Just ask. Jesus, I, I want you. I need you. I'm stuck without you. And see if he gives generously. Generously, without reproach. 
Let's pray. Would you join me? As, let's, let's just all ask Jesus for more of him. Lord, some of us in here uh, have known you and walked with you for decades. Some of us in here don't know you. Some of us, we're, wherever we are, we're, we're all on a journey. None of us has arrived. None of us has any place for, for boasting or arrogance. Because we know that on our own, we just, we can't, we can't. We can't. Lord, give us wisdom. Make us wise. We can't make ourselves wise, but you can. And we know we can only become wise through your word. We can only become wise insofar as we are filled to the brim with Jesus Christ. So Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, fill us from our toenails to our fingernails to the hairs on our head. Fill us with you. Fill us with your wisdom. Make us more and more like you so that as we pray on earth as it is in heaven or as we think in in Portsmouth as it is in heaven, we might know the joy of not just longing for you to do those things, but we might be the, know the joy of participating with you, of working with you to make it in Portsmouth, in Kittery, in Dover, in Greenland, as it is in heaven. Change us. Make us wise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.